the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef were two locations that were featured in a BBC broadcast that came out a few years ago. Uh, the series highlighted these two places as part of a show or a program that was called 50 Places to See Before You Die. The show seems to have spawned sort of an entire genre, a similar series, 100 Things to Do Before You Die, included getting a tattoo and milking a cow, 100 Things to Eat Before You Die, which included eating a hot dog and eating a crocodile. So this whole genre of 50 things to do or 100 things to eat or 100 things to see reveals something really significant about us. Paul alludes to it in this very chapter. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, we need to experience the best of what's out there before it's too late. The greatest fear of many in our first world society, where we generally don't have to worry about merely eating and keeping a roof over our heads, is to make what we get at the end of our lives worth the time we spent living it. We want to get to the end of our life and feel like we got our money's worth. And this has entered our modern lingo in the form of a relatively new acronym. I'm sure most of you have heard it. FOMO. Fear of missing out. F-O-M-O. We're increasingly anxious and desperate as a culture not to miss out on the best of what's out there, and we are kind of plagued by the fear that we just might Life is short, the world is big, and we've only got one shot at this thing. But the perspective of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is very different. In fact, he quotes the phrase, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, assuming that that would be the case if there were no resurrection. Yes, the world is big. Yes, life is short. But brothers and sisters, this life is not the main event. It's a preliminary fight that people are still walking into the arena to see. It's not the main course. It's an appetizer. It's not the full movie. It's just a trailer for coming attractions. So we're discussing our sixth and final church challenge in these messages, the challenge of death in 1 Corinthians 15 and 16. Last week we looked at the past hope of the resurrection, and this week we want to look at the future hope of the resurrection. We've all thought about it. What is eternal life really? How will we spend it? What will happen to us? What's it all going to be like? Well, Paul tells us in these verses. So I hope you're interested and excited to see what your future hope as a child of God is. And it is an embodied existence. One in which you will live forever with Christ and His people in the new heavens and new earth 
with a body that is glorified like Jesus' body has been glorified. Three points this morning on our future resurrection hope. First, our future resurrection can happen. Second, our future resurrection will happen. And thirdly, our future resurrection must happen. First point, our future resurrection can happen. In verses 35 to 44, Paul's going to tell us why it's reasonable, totally and entirely reasonable, to believe in a future resurrection. Do you know how unreasonable it is in our culture to believe in a future resurrection now? It's really unreasonable. But Paul wants to show you that just by looking around at the world in which you inhabit, you'll find many evidences for resurrection already playing out that point forward to a future resurrection for us. So the key question, which is asked in our own day and asked in Paul's day, is in verse 35, where Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, based upon Paul's response to this question in the next verse, it's clear that he doesn't view this as an honest question. Perhaps the Corinthians were asking the question and seeking to call in to question the power of God. Essentially, they were asking how the bodily resurrection of believers could be possible at all. If Jesus were posed this question, which he kind of was in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, he would say something like, you're wrong because you, don't neither, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Nevertheless, Paul answers the question by answering or sorry, by drawing their attention to the obvious testimony of the resurrection that's already present in the world around them. God has placed signposts in our world pointing to future resurrection. It already exists in the natural world. Nature is full of examples of life that come from apparent death. God has embedded this resurrection reality in the changing of the seasons from winter to spring. Everything dies. And then everything just comes back to life. The implication is that Paul says to the Corinthians and to us this morning, you shouldn't have a problem thinking about a future resurrection. It's in your everyday experience already. So Paul's going to give us two analogies from nature to prove that resurrecting the corpses of believers isn't all that unreasonable. It can happen. First one. If you're skeptical about the resurrection of the body, look down at the ground. If you're skeptical about the resurrection of the body, look down at the ground. Paul draws an illustration beginning at verse 36 from the world of agriculture, which was the main source of illustration for both Jesus and, it seems, the Apostle Paul. His basic point is expressed in verse 36. Look at it with me. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul says, think about it. Look down at the ground. Every time you plant a seed, you're burying it in the ground. And it goes through a symbolic death called germination. And yet it comes to life. A plant grows from something being buried in the ground. And growth can only happen because the plant first dies. 
Jesus describes it this way in John chapter 12, verse 24, referring to the way his own death would lead to resurrection. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's the way Jesus thought about his own death and his own resurrection. He said it's like a seed. So if Jesus thought of his death and resurrection like that, we should think of our death and resurrection like that as well, if we are in union with him. Leaving the seed and its packaging leads to nothing, right? It has to die first. It has to go into the ground. So to think of the idea of a human body going into the ground and one day rising to new life really isn't ridiculous as it sounds, is it? As with the seed, our bodies have to die so that they can be raised. If a plant has to go through this process, why would we be surprised by the thought of a human being being raised in a similar way? But Paul doesn't stop there. There's more. Look at verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Think about it. Most seeds, I would say probably almost all seeds, do not in any way remotely resemble the plant that comes from them, do they? If you were to show me a mix of various kinds of seeds from different vegetables, I couldn't begin, although some of you could, I couldn't begin to tell you just from the appearance of that seed what vegetable that's going to produce. And this is the beauty of the agricultural process. There is a complete transformation of the seed into something new through this process of death. Before and after, while emerging from the same source, they look completely different. What emerges from the ground is out of proportion from what is put into it. Much like the seed which has to die in order to bring something else to life, our earthly body is like a seed that must die in order for a new body to come into its place. It's not impossible for a seed to be transformed into something new. So it's not impossible for God to do something with our resurrection bodies either. So Paul says, if you're skeptical about the resurrection, he doesn't mention the changing of the seasons, I did. But he says, look down at the ground. Pay attention to what's happening when a plant grows. The seed dies and the plant comes. Secondly, he says, if you're skeptical about the resurrection of the body, look around at the animals and look up at the sky. Look around at the animals and look up at the sky. So he's going to take our view off the ground and he's going to give us a wide angle view of the natural world beginning in verse 38. Look at 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. That's the animal kingdom. Verse 40, he directs our gaze to the sky. He says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. He says, when you look around at the earth, and you see a multitude of different kinds of bodies represented in the natural world, be they bodies of fish, bodies of animals, bodies of humans. Each one is situated to the environment in which they live. Right? We don't have gills. We don't live in the water. 
Right? We don't need heavy coats of fur. Contrary to the way some of us men live, big hairy guys. But it's obviously that there's a staggering range of variety in the bodies that God has given his creatures. God's not limited in his scope or his capacity. God's physical creativity is boundless. Every creature has the body that it needs, and each earthly body has its own unique features that correspond to its needs. So Paul's point is if you look around at the animal kingdom and you see they have the body that they need, don't be surprised that God would raise your body from the dead and make it glorious so that it can have what it needs to inhabit eternity. God designs bodies to flourish in diverse places and ways. And if God designs what He creates to flourish where it exists, then it reasons from His design that the resurrected corpses of believers will flourish in His kingdom to come. When Paul draws our gaze to the animal kingdom, he wants us to notice that. He says, notice the different kinds of bodies that God gives. So if God gives all these different kinds of bodies, don't you think he's able to make you have a new body too? He's not limited by the body he's created you with now. So Paul says, look down at the ground, pay attention to the agricultural process, look around at the animal kingdom, pay attention to what kind of bodies they have. And he says, look up at the sky, pay attention to the stars. Look at verse 41. He says, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. He speaks of the sun, moon, and the stars, and the infinite variety of stars that we see, not just with the naked eye, but by virtue of technological expansion, even with the telescope now. And he says, notice that. The sun is one thing, the moon is another thing, and stars are all different things. They're all different heavenly bodies, that have different heavenly bodies. They have different structures. They're made of different materials. The sun is not the moon. The moon is not the stars. Each star is not like another star. Each one of them bears its own unique glory. And so Paul says of our future resurrection body that each one of them will also bear a unique glory. For in creation, God has assigned different kinds of bodies and different glories to the physical world. Similar, each heavenly body that we will possess will bear its own unique glory. His point is, is that the polarities that we sense between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm are not insurmountable problems for God. Look at the animal kingdom. See all the different kinds of bodies. Look at the sky. See all the different kinds of bodies. He's not talking about physical. He's talking about the way in which they're presented to us visually. And he says, if you look up at the sky and you look around at the earth and you look down at the ground, you see this staggering variety and unique glory of the things that God has made. Some of his bodies that he has made are heavenly. Some of his bodies that he has made are earthly. And he's trying to teach us something by this panorama, panoramic view of creation. He's trying to show you, brothers and sisters, the resurrection can happen. Resurrection bodies can happen. It is reasonable. Just as there is continuity and discontinuity 
from the seed to the plant as it dies and bears fruit, and there's variety in the animal kingdom, and there's unique glory from the realm of sky and space, Paul says that our pre-resurrection existence and post-resurrection existence is entirely reasonable. He says the body that is sown an earthly body can be raised a heavenly body. And here he emphasizes the inferiority of our present bodies to the resurrected bodies that we will inherit by way of four contrasts. Look first of all at verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that is what dies in the ground, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Brothers and sisters, our bodies are sown into the ground perishable like Martha's mother this week. Sown into the ground perishable. But it's raised imperishable at the return of Christ. No more sickness. No more death. Second contrast, verse 33. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. No more sin. No more shame. Third contrast, Verse 33, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. No more frailty, no more temptation. Fourth and final contrast, verse 44, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. No more limitations to this time and space sphere. Now, just to be clear, it's abundantly obvious from this entire chapter that when Paul uses the phrase spiritual for our future body, he doesn't mean that it's not physical or immaterial, that, it's, that it doesn't have a, a, a form or a material to it. He's contrasting the natural body that we possess now with the supernatural body we will possess in the resurrection. Paul's not contra- contrasting material and immaterial. He's talking about a natural body versus a spiritual or supernatural body. That is a body that's empowered and infused by the life-giving Spirit of God. Both bodies are physical. So are you persuaded? At least I hope you can see from the Apostle's argument that the resurrection body is not as far-fetched of an idea as we might think. God has put its imprints throughout His creation in the ground, in the animals, in the sky, if we just have eyes to see. Our future resurrection can happen. It is reasonable. Second point, our future resurrection will happen. It's certain. The analogy that Paul gives in verses 45 to 49 express that because Christ has risen from the dead, our resurrection bodies are certain to rise as well, or our bodies are certain to certainly will rise as well. Notice, first of all, if you're uncertain about the resurrection of the body or you don't think it will happen, consider the first Adam. Look at verse 45. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's Paul quoting from Genesis 2. Paul calls him a man in verse 47 from the earth, a man of the dust. These verses are almost a direct quotation from God's creation account of Adam in Genesis 2 where we are told that God created Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. We could almost say that while... Adam didn't experience a resurrection. He did experience a surrection, right? Even though God didn't bring him to life again, he did bring him to life. 
right? He formed his body, and then he put, breathed into him life, and he became a living being. So Paul says, if he can do that with the first man, couldn't he do that with us? Of course. Consider how the first Adam was brought to life. He wasn't brought to life by mere creation, as far as his physical form being created. He was, he was brought to life when the Spirit breathed into him, or God breathed into him, the breath of life. And it was at that point that he became a living being. So think about it. If Paul did that with the first Adam, he can do it with the second Adam. And he can do it with us. And think about it. We're already living Adam's existence anyway, right? Are we not following the path of Adam in our life right now? Are you alive? Yes. Are you a creature of the dirt made out of the stuff of the earth? Yes. Do you inhabit a natural, physical body right now? Yes. Are you dying? Yes. So does that not all show that we bear the image of Adam? That we bear the image of the man of dust, like he says in verses 48 and 49? It most certainly does. So if you're uncertain about the resurrection of body, just consider the first Adam, the way God created him, and the pattern of life that we are following. We, we too were created by God. We too are living in a broken down, failing, dying body. Because we are in union with Adam. Second, not only will the resurrection happen because of the first Adam, but secondly, if you're uncertain about the resurrection of the body, consider the last Adam. Consider the last Adam. By way of contrast, see what Paul says about Christ here in these verses. While Adam is, was merely a living being, which we all are now, the second Adam, that is Christ, became, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, a life-giving spirit. Look what he says in verse 45. Thus it is written, the first Adam, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Just as the Spirit of God breathed life into the first Adam, so now Jesus, the second Adam, can breathe life into his people by the Spirit. Just as Adam inhabited a natural body, so Christ inhabits a supernatural body. And just as Adam possesses the physical nature of a body from the dust of the earth, so Christ possesses, by virtue of his resurrection, the spiritual nature of a body from the glories of heaven. And just as Adam came from the dust, and to the dust he will return, so Christ emerged from the dust of death, never to return again. And just as we bear the image of the man of the dust, Adam, by virtue of our faith in, dependence on, and union with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we too in the future will bear the image of the man of heaven, taking on the glorious traits of the resurrected human body that Christ currently possesses. Paul's point is that the natural body of Adam came first, then the supernatural body of Christ comes later, and the supernatural body that we will possess will belong to us by virtue of our union with the second Adam. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3.21, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there who will return to transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. 
So are you persuaded that the resurrection will happen? You should be, because Christ's resurrection happened. And if Christ's resurrection happened, and he is a life-giving spirit who is able to give life to his people, we too will experience resurrection by virtue of our union with him. Thirdly, our resurrection not only can happen, it not only will happen, but it must happen. It must happen. That is, it's necessary. First of all, if you weren't resurrected, you wouldn't be fit for heaven. If we weren't resurrected, we wouldn't be fit for heaven. This is why the resurrection must happen. Our future resurrection is necessary because of what Paul says in verse 50. Look at verse 50 with me. It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He says your resurrection has to happen because you can't get into the kingdom any other way. The kingdom is an imperishable kingdom. You can't enter it with a perishable body. You have to enter it with an imperishable body. So God will suddenly transform our earthly bodies, dead or alive, into a heavenly body when Christ returns. And then he describes how this is going to happen. He says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now that's not meant to say, this is something I only know something about. This is, this is something that was previously not understood in its fullness by the people of God in the Old Testament, but now it is fully revealed to us in Christ because now we've seen Christ raised from the dead and we've seen how his existence is. So he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Now what he's talking about here is when Christ returns. Remember, he's already alluded to this in verse 23. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. This is consistent with what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's consistent about what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. He's saying there's two states of existence that believers will be in when Christ returns. Either they will be asleep, that is, they're dead, their physical bodies are in the ground, their spirits are with the Lord, their souls are with the Lord, or they will be here on earth, still living in a physical body, body and soul, still united. And he says to them that when Christ returns, we shall not all sleep, that is, we won't all be dead, but we shall all be changed. Every single one, whether, whether dead or alive, will be transformed in that moment. Now, Paul makes clear in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. So the, the, the believers who are coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ, all the souls of all those whom he has saved that are waiting for their resurrection bodies, their bodies are going to get raised first and immediately reunited to their souls. And, at the, and right after that, the souls are the, bod the bodies of believers that are living on the earth at that point, who still are living in a physical body, who still have their body and soul united, will be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, overclothed. They will have their resurrection body swallow up their earthly body. So, regardless if the believer is dead or the believer is alive with the coming of Christ, they will be fit for heaven by being given their glorious bodies at the return of Jesus. And he says this will happen in the twinkling of an eye. As fast as you can blink one time is how fast all of this will happen. At the last trumpet, which will signal the end. When all this happens, God will transforms, 
the dead believers into their resurrected and transformed bodies, reuniting body and soul. Second, living believers will have their earthly bodies immediately transformed with a body and soul being swallowed up in a heavenly body. And the reason Paul gives in verse 53 is to make us fit for heaven. Look what he says. He says in verse 53, For this perishable body must, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. It has to happen. If we're going to heaven, it has to happen. Now, he's not talking about heaven in its present sense, right? We talk about the intermediate state. The Bible talks about heaven in a couple of different ways. Heaven is glorious now. Heaven is the place where we are in God's immediate presence with all of his people, angels, so on and so forth. But it is an immaterial existence. It is your soul made perfect in the presence of God, which Paul says in Philippians 1, is far better than to stay here. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. And to depart with be, and be with Christ is far better. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we would rather die than live live where, where if, if we could go be with the Lord. That is, if he, if he takes us at that point. But that is not ever to be the believer's preferred existence. It's not Paul's. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about this reality. And he says he would rather experience the coming of Christ while he's still on earth than, than to have his body and his soul rent apart, even though it's better. He says there's a good, there's a better, there's a best. Right? The good is to live on in this body in fruitful labor for Christ. That is good. That we live here now for the glory of Jesus. That is good. What's better is that we die, depart, and be with Christ. Our soul goes to be with Christ. Our body goes into the ground. That's better, but it's not best. Best is if Christ were to return now and swallow up death in life so that we never have to go through dying. But much like Elijah prefigured, we're just caught up and taken immediately into the presence of the Lord. But I want you to see that Paul says again and again in these opening verses of verse 50 on that we must experience resurrection if we're going to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth at the coming of Christ. If we weren't resurrected, we wouldn't be fit for heaven. Secondly, if we weren't resurrected, we wouldn't be free from death. If we weren't resurrected, we wouldn't be free from death. After this transformation, notice what Paul the Apostle describes that will happen next. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Christ will finally and decisively at his coming defeat death once and for all. Death will die. Death has a funeral. Quoting Isaiah 25, 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will remove from the earth entirely. In conclusion, I want to make two applications. First of all, I want to ask, if you're, you being here this morning, is this true for you? Paul talks about, we read it, we read it earlier when we were doing our congregational reading, 
Paul says, talking about the resurrection of the body, in this hope we were saved. Is this your hope? Is it a well-grounded, reasonable, necessary hope because you are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ? If it's not your hope, I want you to hear this again. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, we'll all be made alive. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the sting of death comes from sin. That's why we die. Death exists only because sin warrants death. And the power of sin is the law because our fallen natures take God's good law and twist it into something that encourages us to break it. Yet in Christ, in His death and His resurrection, He has removed death as the penalty for sin for Christians and has set us free from sin, from the enslavement to the law as something that condemns us and that is used to incite more sin. See, we have the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ because we have been moved from being in Adam to being moved to being in Christ. And that's what I want to ask you this morning. Have you made that move? Spiritually, have you gotten out of Adam and gotten into Christ where you receive the power to love and obey God? Matthew Henry said, Christ by dying has taken out the sting of death. He has made atonement for our sin. He has obtained remission of it. It may hiss, therefore, but it cannot hurt. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You don't get to heaven by dying. If that were the case, flesh and blood could inherit the kingdom of God. But you can't. You need to be in union with the resurrected second Adam to be able to get into heaven. He's gone before. He's the first fruits. You need to be attached to him. You say, how do you get attached to Jesus? Well, we talked about that last week. Say, I wasn't here last week. Okay, well, I'll give it to you now. The way you get attached to Jesus is by transferring your trust from yourself to him. By placing your faith completely, wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's it. You collapse on Jesus. You hold fast to Jesus. You say to Jesus, Jesus, I must be in union with you. I have to be in union with you. I have to be coupled and attached to you in some meaningful way. Otherwise, the grave's it. But it's not it. Because Jesus makes clear that even the bodies and the souls of unrighteous men and women will be raised. And friend, you will not only suffer for eternity in your soul, the Bible makes clear you will suffer for eternity in your body. And that is a fearful thought. Because you know the pain your body gives you now. You know the experiences of suffering your body gives you now. And just as much as it is an embodied reality awaits the future of us as believers, so does the, a bodily reality await a future for unbelievers. And so I plead with you, do not live and die in Adam. Do not live and die in Adam. If so, you will die twice. You will die physically and you will die spiritually in your body, which will be raised and raised to condemnation. But if you're in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be raised to newness and fullness of life in him. So dear ones, 
Knowing all this gives us a new way of looking at our lives. The fact is, this body now that you live in, that I live in, in all the ways in which we, it can be a, both a blessing and a burden, is not the only bodily experience that you will ever have. Through Christ, we are confident of a future resurrection. There will be no more physical temptations, no more spiritual and physical weakness, no more shame and affliction, no more sin, no more death. In terms of this life now, I'm beginning to get past my prime. 42. I feel it. And I know some of you all feel it even more than I do. You say, oh, the glory 42, those were the glory days. <laughs> but here's the good news. My best physical days and your best physical days are ahead of you, not behind you. You don't need to constantly look back on past glories and lament the encroaching limitations of age. You don't need to worry about squeezing every last drop you can get out of the pleasure of this life. The best is yet to come. If you never get to see all those things we're all told endlessly that we have to see before we die or experience all those experiences or visit all those places, we can look forward to an entire eternity of enjoying the new creation in a resurrected body. And those will be experiences that will make the best of experiences in this life be a distant memory. And the visits that, and the places we saw and the things that we experienced to be nothing but a passing, fading memory. Listen, brothers and sisters, don't buy into the world's lie. There is no urgency here. If you get a chance to take vacations, take vacations. See cool stuff. Experience things. But we're going to all die with 10,000 experiences we could have had that we didn't have. And that's okay. Because other things matter much, much more. And you're not going to ultimately miss out on anything. The grave may be your destination, but it's not your destiny. There is risen life to come. As George Herbert, the poet, Christian poet, eloquently wrote, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel made it just a gardener. Death is no longer the threat it once was. It has been defeated. It has been defanged in Christ. The signs of hanging on to life are no longer a threat. They're a promise. Gray hair, deepening lines on your face, fading eyesight, lingering pain, a lack of mental sharpness. These things all don't need to speak to us of a past we can no longer recover, but of a future we can barely conceive. The glory days are still to come. I know Bruce Springsteen told us different. Glory days, they'll pass you by. In a sense, they will, but in another sense, they won't. You don't bury a Christian, you plant a Christian. One day to arise in perfected, physical, eternal glory. Perhaps the final words should go to C.S. Lewis, and I'll give these to him and we'll close. These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. We must learn to manage, not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback, confident, rejoicing, those greater mounts, those winged, shining, and world-shaking horses, which perhaps even now expect us with impatient, pawing and snorting in the king's navels. Creation is groaning and longing for the resurrection 
of the, of the, of the, of the children of God. If creation could speak right now, Paul says in Romans 8, it would say to each one of God's people, I cannot wait one more day till you're raised from the dead. I cannot wait one more day till you're raised from the dead. Because when you're raised from the dead, this whole creation's getting raised from the dead. And we are going to inhabit it together with our raising, reigning and risen Lord Jesus Christ and reigning and risen lives for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glorious future hope of resurrection. Thank you for the way in which your word tells us with certainty, with reasonability, with necessity, that all these things can, will, and must happen because Christ has died and has risen again. Oh, how much confidence we, sh- we should have. Perhaps more confidence than we, should e- we ever thought possible that because Jesus left the grave behind, it transforms everything. It transforms our hope for life now and for life to come. If He didn't rise from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. And let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But because, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, all that we've talked about this morning is true. Our future resurrection is certain. Our future resurrection is reasonable. Our future resurrection is necessary. It will all happen. Thank you that we can leave this service this morning with rock-solid confidence that death has lost its sting that death is not the enemy it once was, that it has been defanged and dethroned, and it sits firmly under the foot of our resurrected Savior who will kill it once and for all when He returns again. And we pray that You would hasten that day, Lord Jesus. Any of us in this room this morning who are still in Adam, living, breathing, walking corpses in Adam, destined for post-resurrection judgment, destined for death in the grave, Lord, might we find life in Christ this morning. Raise them to spiritual life through the power of your gospel by your Holy Spirit. We pray this for the glory of Jesus in his name. Amen. Let's stand.